Hello, everyone. Episode 19 of the Citrix Session. I'm your host, Andy Whiteside. We're on uh, part four of our uh, topic of Citrix DAZ and CVAD 2209. And I've got a full panel today, and I don't know if we'll get through it today. Hopefully not. Hopefully that means we're having a whole bunch of discussions around, uh, around what's going on. I've got uh, Bill Sutton, Director of Services. Bill, how's it going? It's integral. Going well, Andy. Bill, are you on your way to Charlotte today? I will be on my way to Charlotte within the next two hours. Awesome. We've got leadership meetings um, the next couple of days looking overwhelming, overwhelmed. Uh, got a lot going on, but excited to have people here talking about where we're going next. Yep. yep. Uh, let's see. We've got Jeremy Myers back. Jeremy was missing last week. Jeremy, you, what were you doing? Hopefully something good. Oh, my. What was I doing? I don't know. It was, it's been a busy. We had QBRs last week, so we, oh, had, yeah. we had a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have to imagine QBRs right now are interesting. Is it uh, QBRs to tee up fourth quarter or QBRs to tee up 2023? Um, well, most of it is is Q4 for sure, um, with a little bit of a look into the future, but mostly Q4 business for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I kind of miss those days of sitting in the vendor seat and going through QBRs and talking about what's working, what's not working, and uh, holding people accountable uh, for knowing their accounts and what they're what their goals were and you know why they were buying or not buying what they were proposed to be buying. Yeah. You know what? I think we, we do have a slide where we do a look back now and that's always pretty useful because you kind of, you you remember the talk track you had and kind of what you thought and then what actually happened is always right. a, a pretty good conversation. You know, the other thing too is, you know, we usually think through, you know, what kind of a territory plan, like how do we approach not just individual deals, but just the business in general, mm -hmm. thinking about what Citrix is selling and all those things. Right. And then, to sit down and go, all right, well, what worked and what didn't work is also usually eye-opening as well. Yeah. It's good. So we have, uh, and, and part of that, that it was enjoyable um, mm -hmm. when I was back in the role of a sales engineer. I never was actually responsible for the exact answer. I just had to support mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt bad for some of the sales guys who had to answer when things didn't go right, which, you know, happens a lot. I mean, it's just part yeah. of business sales. Well, that's usually so when I when I bring new folks onto the team and they're going through their first QBR, trying to explain to them what to what to expect and you know, kind of what your responsibility is 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 always interesting um, because for the most part, you know, we're really just kind of in support. I usually I like to say we're the color commentator, if you will. Yeah. Um, but we're very much a part of the sales team. But you're right, um, we're we're not as they say on the hook. Yeah. So, I think the same thing when I see Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. I think yeah, mm -hmm. Troy Aikman's a sales. I've literally thought that. Yeah. Um, all right, Todd Smith, how's it going, Todd? It's fantastic, Andy. Wow. Having a great, great week. Uh, started off with a uh, great event. Well, one, one real quick, uh, more pressure, a QBR uh, or your son and future son asking to get married to your daughter? <laughs> well, it's interesting because a QBR, you know, the, the, the sales engineer isn't always on the hot seat, but when, uh, when you're asking permission to uh, marry a daughter, um, especially my daughter, um, it can be a little bit uh, intimidating. And yes, Stephen is on the hook for, uh, but he's he's good to her and she's good for him and he treats her the right way. And I couldn't be more happy. So uh, my daughter, Jillian, got engaged on Saturday morning, overlooking uh, the sun was coming up over the ocean, got a chance to... Uh, catch a photo of what uh what happened but uh you know whirlwind weekend yeah. now it's a matter of planning and uh you know the rest of the stuff of 
you know, planning and paying for it. I really like that story and how it aligns to what we do and what we're going to talk about here. But I assume your future son-in-law has been educating and setting the stage for six to many, many more months than that, just like we are here today, helping people know where they, you know, what they don't know, they don't know and helping them get prepared for the moment. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, the, the wedding industry and the wedding venues have all been hit with COVID as well. Uh, and it's the backlash of, uh, you know, they're doing, they're scheduling midweek weddings now because the volume is such, so backed up that they can't find, you know, spaces with the, the services that go along with it and things like that, because for, for the past three years, people haven't been able to do these things. And, you know, I, I think we've, we've got a similar analogy going on in, in our space um, in the fact that, you know, a lot of times people don't keep current on versions and things like that of, of, you know, operating system upgrades, application upgrades, you know, leveraging some of the resources that are out there. And, you know, people are becoming a really, if you want to date, you can sometimes become very, very creative um, with what you can do uh, about location and services and things like that. And I, I've never, never thought that a food truck catered wedding would be a, uh, would be an option nowadays. And uh, it's certainly becoming options available nowadays. So. Yeah. Hybrid, hybrid work, hybrid marriage, hybrid, not, hybrid wedding, not marriage. Yes. <laughs> and the podcast took a different turn. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This hybrid, this hybrid marriage thing is kind of, uh, you just opened up a can of worms there. <laughs> I think it is. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then the other thing you were giving Jeremy a hard time about uh, his Carolina Panthers shirt and actually getting, I guess the second win. The is. second win, yeah. Yeah. Well, you trade away your best player and you get rid of your head coach. I mean, you know, that's a formula for success anywhere. Well, I think the head coach was – that was expected. And to be perfectly honest, you know, I would say good for Christian McCaffrey, right? So I think, number one, you know, I don't know how much shelf life he's got left, right, to go play for a team where you can actually get something done. And then, number two, I think the maybe the Panthers came out on top because we, we need some help. Definitely on the uh, the draft schedule. So, you know, I think this, uh, I think the Panthers came out on top. I think Christian came out on top. I'm not so sure about the 49ers. I guess we'll see. He, he certainly played well yesterday in the 49ers mm-hmm. game. Although the 49ers didn't didn't play well as a team, Christian played really well. So, yeah. I don't know who one of the losers was in that whole thing. Who's that? Me. I was one of the losers. Let me let me explain why. So we're going to talk about about Daz, which is uh, Mm -hmm. Citrix Virtual App and Desktop as a Service Platform. And then we're going to talk about Citrix Virtual App and Desktop um, um, Non-Service, which is where you build on your own premises. Well, guess what? Uh, No one in my family owned a Carolina Panthers jersey until (laughs) two weeks ago. And guess whose jersey both of my kids bought a jersey of? Christian McCaffrey. Yeah. It's a collector's item. We finally, well, that may be true. We'll see. Time will tell. But when we finally made the investment, made the move, we made the move, and then the Panthers and the NFL transformed, aka digital transformation, you know, kind of concept. And I'm out of date already. Think about it. Yep. 
That's why yeah. I should just get, I should just buy NFL and you go to a game and you see, you know, jerseys from people, you know, 20 years ago, they weren't even, yep. that are, I mean, it's one thing if it was a you know, NFL hall of famer, you were okay, fine. That makes sense. Uh, it's another thing when you wear a jersey from somebody who was irrelevant, just happens to be who you bought at the moment. And within, you know, three months or a year, they're gone. Um, that whole transformation thing that we're going to somewhat talk about here in a minute is it's everywhere. It is. I mean, I guess we'll, we'll find out who the Tim Biakabatuka is of transformation because that was my first jersey. If I tuck it around somewhere, if I look somewhere, I've still probably still got it. But that guy was probably running back for 10 minutes and gone. And there you go. So, so one thing, one thing, since we're talking about jerseys, uh, I'll throw in a Boston College reference here. The number one selling jersey at Boston College football stadium is still the Doug Flutie number 22. And unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, that was almost 40 years ago. Oh. <laughs> How does it make you feel? Old. Oh, yeah, the throw, the catch, the catch. Remember that? <laughs> I'm an NC State football fan and graduate, and Philip Rivers jersey is still the one you'll see the most of. Mm-hmm. And a Russell Wilson jersey, and that didn't even end well. I digress. All right, well, guys, thanks for jumping on this again as part four of this topic around DAS 2209, which means September of 2022 by Heather Tatt. Um, let's see. We got to the point last time we talked through the Google stuff, right, Todd? Yes, we did. And that now gets us to our friends at AWS. Okay. Let's set the stage. I have this conversation with people all the time. I have this conversation with my own team. There's no such thing as the cloud. There's clouds. And then there's, in the world of IaaS, there's public clouds, there's AWS, Google, um, uh, Microsoft Azure, um, and then there's, you know, semi-private clouds, or maybe it's uh, something like a Rackspace, maybe it's Integra's data center, and then there's even customers cloud where they build it in a colo and maybe even hire somebody to manage it separately and they get all the benefits of cloud or some of the benefits cloud, uh, depending on whether it's, we're arguing CapEx or uh, OpEx or what have you. Uh, the thing is, when you adopt technologies and um, and uh, workloads, specifically in this case, desktop computing, virtual apps and desktops, virtual desktops, uh, that cloud story is very, very robust. And as you are adopting Citrix specifically, you have to make sure you're buying and adopting and moving towards the one that meets your cloud's needs. And you know, a lot of times people get hung up on, well, it costs $3 more license. I don't want to do that. But if it enables initiatives that are clouds types of initiatives that you need to get done for your business, that $3 more user isn't really a big deal. Speechless? Agree? Disagree? No, 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 no. You're, you're right. You're right. I mean, scale is, scale is king, right? Well, not only that, but I'll ask Jeremy and Todd this question. Um, <laughs> of the customers you can think off, off the top of your head, how many of them have ever effectively uh, and efficiently and financially justified having a second data center for, for desktop and app workloads that may or may sit there doing nothing most of the time? Most, a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's not uncommon, but I mean, I come from a day and age when that was just expected too, right? Even before the cloud, you just assumed if you, I mean, you built the second data center out and you know, it became a, a, is it, what kind of data center is it? Is it cold, warm, or hot, right? And that was the biggest 
Well, decision market, making factor, yeah. Only one answer, and that's hot, right? I mean, you got to have desktops sitting there. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of maybe for their Oracle workloads or whatever mm-hmm. it is, they're going to have two data centers and have one, a second one either hot or at least kind of very warm. But for their desktop virtualization environment, you would ask them to see that second scenario, and it was trivial at best. I mean, I think it depended, right? So you got to understand that Citrix, the desktop environment, is just the front end for the back end in a lot of cases. So, you know, one of the first things that I usually ask when it comes to, you know, putting quote unquote Citrix in a second data center is, well, what's your application strategy? Like, are you just replicating data? Are you replicating the back end? Like, what's that look like? Because I think that is probably, I mean, that is as important as the front end, right? And just understanding what that strategy is will tell you everything. I mean, Citrix is the easy part-ish, right? I mean, just getting desktops out to a second location is not tough. You know, there's things like profiling and, you know, the hypervisors and how you spin them up and all that good stuff. But I mean, if you've got an Epic customer, ask them what that looks like, right? So there's a lot to it for sure. And I think so much of it, Jeremy, is is based on the industry and the compliance programs and the governance programs that are out there, right? And if you're in financial services, which I was before many years ago, you know, we had requirements to have a hot data center, a uh, hot data center for our, for not only for our production, but also as our backup. And we would actually do things like a three-phase commit where we would not only have it in production, but we would also make sure it was copied over to our secondary data center, as well as that it was on backup tape somehow, backup media. Um, and that was just the rule that we had. The other thing is that we had requirements to test the ability to flip the phone system over for our customer care operation, right? So every week we would do a phone switch test. Um, We would also do testing of, you know, we had 150 seats at our backup data center facility or or disaster recovery site that had updated computers. And that that was part of our monthly task is to send people down to that backup site to make sure that every operating system was patched and this was in the day where you'd have to walk around with CDs and diskettes and basically manually patch 100 to 150 machines to make sure that in case we do have that disaster, because we had a four-hour turnaround time. So we had to return to operations within four hours of declaring a disaster. And it was a challenge. And it was expensive to do it that way, too. I think, Todd, what I'm getting at is in today's world, when we decide we're going to go in strategically and virtualize the desktop or the application, the client side of the application relationship, I still see tons of customers that they've they've got the redundancy for their critical business application, but they haven't realized that the virtual desktop that they've now adopted in some large degree is part of that critical business system. And they're still sitting with that, which is that's in one data center and they'd have to go rebuild that somewhere else. Well, I mean, I think the and maybe what you're hitting at is business continuity is so much more than what we think it is, right? It's not only preserving the data itself, right, but access to the data, right? So, you know, just because you've replicated something out, I mean, how do you get folks to it? I mean, that's a that's as big a deal as actually, you know, maintaining the data itself. Yeah, I, I worked for a Fortune 500 defense contractor one time, and they had a one-page DR plan, and that was everybody take your laptop every night. And, and I bet if they walked around the, the office at night, they'd see laptops sitting on desks. Yeah. There was this this pain in the butt guy, me, who went and ran a report and found that the CIO who came up with a plan didn't take his laptop home. Right. It had dust on it. It was in the docking station with dust on it. Yeah. 
and I logged in and his VPN hadn't been accessed in over a year. I was like, okay. Anyway, I bring all that up because if you adopt IaaS, either public cloud, semi-private cloud, whatever, and you adopt in conjunction with that PaaS, in this case, Citrix DAS, mm -hmm. all of a sudden the opportunity to get this done becomes much more doable than ever before. It does. It does. Anyone who's ever stood up, quote unquote, Citrix in two different data centers just knows the effort involved mm -hmm. for sure. And it's it's greatly simplified. So I've got a, I'm in the middle of an opportunity now. Um, customers got eight data centers all over the globe. And this completely simplifies that entire model. Granted, it's not all, you know, for DR. Some of it is just that's where they, I mean, it's distributed data. That's the other piece, right? Is, you know, and I think, Andy, we talk about this all the time is, you know, I don't think we see customers going all in in a specific cloud. It becomes maybe where they land eventually is the data, the applications live where they need to live, whether it's a cost issue, a compliance issue, a governance issue, whatever, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have applications and data in multiple locations. How do you simplify access to it? And that's kind of the, the Citrix story. And, and the only time I see people that I truly agree with going all in on public cloud is when they have what Jeremy just said, which is a true need for eight data centers. That's super hard to do yourself or even with a strategic partner like us. Um, the public cloud has to become part of that story. If, if not for all of it, at least for some of it. Mm -hmm. Definitely some of it. Yep. All right. This, I said all that. So now let's talk about AWS. Um, Todd, you want to jump on this one? What are you guys announcing with AWS as part of this latest release? So, so really, it's it's a couple of things, right? So being able to improve our scalability within AWS, but also being able to, you know, work with uh, throttling, right, to optimize start instances. So it's a lot of it was a lot of it's catching up on the features that we've had with some of our other cloud providers. Um, but really comes down to being able to, to improving scalability and also including the management and operational aspects of it. Yeah. You, you guys are going to see Zintegra make some big announcements around AWS in the coming weeks. Uh, what are the top reasons why you see people uh, adopting um, AWS versus, let's say, an Azure or GCP? Man, that's a great question. Um I would say um, it, it's, first of all, it's very regional. So I'm finding that customers in the Atlanta area, and I don't know why, tend to be doing a lot of AWS. I mean, they are the original sort of infrastructure as a service cloud, if you will, um, you know, platform. So a lot of folks look to AWS as sort of the, the standard um, for sure. But I mean, they're probably one of the Best, well understood. You know, I think a lot of cloud native applications run on AWS, and so I think that's where the development, you know, community has kind of started and continues to thrive. So I think there's a lot of um, certainly a lot of traction behind AWS. And so you got customers definitely investing there for sure. Oh, do you have any thoughts on what you see? Yeah, and I think the other thing to to go on Jeremy's comment, you know, not only do they have the infrastructure and they've got, you know, they've got a little bit bigger of a footprint. When it comes to there, that's certainly been around longer. But uh, AWS, what we found is that they they tend to have a lot more influence into our customers' base outside of IT, right? So a lot of customers are using services that are being provided by AWS, uh, whether it be data lakes or whether it be some type of process improvement. Um, and for a while, you know, AWS was making a huge investment in their technology 
professionals, right? So the folks that are actually going out and architecting solutions, um, you know, a lot of them have done big things in the business world, whether it being running social media for campaigns, whether it be architecting large scale business transformation, business process transformation projects. Um, you know, so they're, they're getting in, but they're getting in at higher levels than most IT organizations are. Yeah. And, and they've been in there like you guys are alluding to. Bill, anything that you're seeing that, I mean, I've, I, first of all, do you agree with the other two and anything else? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think AWS's strength, I think right now, or historically has been <clears throat> in the application stack, the PaaS stack. Um, they have a very strong IaaS environment. We just don't see in our space, in our customer base that many that are doing AWS. It's uh, it's uh, the other clouds that we see more more frequently. Um, you know, I have seen some AWS relatively recently, but it's not a lot at this point. That may change. <clears throat> Guys, why do you think that you're somewhat, and this isn't bad, this is pretty good timing, really. Why are you guys seeing AWS as a little bit of a catch-up versus, I assume Azure is going to be the one where you see most of the features happening first? I think um, what... what Sorry. Go ahead, was, Tom. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think the I think the reason why people are kind of think about Azure first is because almost every single one of our products run on a Windows operating system. And it just was a natural migration to think, well, why don't I just keep it on on Azure and build Azure first and build to the other one second? Um but I also think it's the familiarity that people have. Right? You know, people people understand how to manage and manipulate the Windows management tools. Well, I think the the other thing, and Andy and I talk about this all the time, is Microsoft makes it very advantageous to run Windows workloads in Azure. And if I'm being nice, you know, it becomes less advantageous. <laughs> to do it in other clouds, right? So simply from a licensing perspective. So a lot of what you see bundled into an M365 license now is it's a Windows 10 license, right? So that's just something you get. Um, you know, you don't need RDS anymore if you're going to run Windows 10 multi-user, right? And what they've done around hybrid rights in, in the sense that, you know, you've got a you've got a license maybe you've already paid for that just kind of works, you know, in Azure, you're paying that, that bare metal Linux rate for instances. So there's a lot of financial value that Microsoft, to your point, Todd, is the platform of Windows. It's just making it financially compelling to want to do it in Azure and not so much in other clouds. Well, I would add on to that, that when you really when you really look at it, that think about Office 365. A lot of customers have Office 365. Where does that typically run? Exchange Online that runs in Azure, right? So they've already got an, active, an Azure Active Directory established. They've got an identity provider established. Um, it seems that a lot of customers say, well, I've already got this identity thing going. I want to do MFA. I can do that in Azure. If I need to go to another cloud, I've got to, I've got to consider other products potentially, maybe not in every case, but in most cases. So it's just, it becomes kind of the default, if you will, because they're already there. Yeah, I'll, I'll take this back to my, the guy who helped me build my second Citrix environment this is 1999. He walks in, I've got Novell servers. I've got Microsoft servers. And he had formerly worked at Microsoft. He said, you know, the Microsoft servers are going to win out. And I was like, no, Novell's better at this, better at that. Microsoft's good at the other stuff. And he said, it's going to come down to where the applications that matter to the end users run. Right. That's why Microsoft um, has, has more of the mind share here 
even though AWS is probably maybe bigger in terms of IaaS, historically they started the whole space. It's Microsoft understands and they're doing things questionably that are driving people to get into and get stuck into their data center for at least the end user side of the equation. Mm -hmm. And what's the golden rule of end user compute? You got to put closest to the to the delivery. You nailed it, right? So you know, if I'm going to put my Windows endpoints or my Windows desktops in Azure, then maybe it makes sense to put the yeah. application yeah. infrastructure there too. So, but here, just to go back to the AWS thing. So I don't want to draw this out, so we don't have week seven of this one blog post, even though that would be awesome too. Um, and what's interesting is so we're we're talking about scalability of VMs and AWS and throttling and things like that, which is awesome, but. Um, it really kind of points out to the fact that, you know, there are a lot of like individual peccadillos, if I can insert that word in the podcast, <laughs> around each of the clouds, right? So, you know, when you think about it, we're leveraging an API. There's some things that are unique to GCP, Azure, AWS, Oracle Cloud, and all those sorts of things. So, you know, in terms of value that the DAS platform brings is it happens really fast too. So when they update AWS, you know, we've got to be, you know, it was agile enough to do that, right? So the whole idea of, you know, patching your Citrix server once every year and a half to a major upgrade to get the new feature that's supported in a certain cloud, that's really tough. So, you know, part of this is is just keeping up with a lot of these, these changes to increase scalability. This has been a big issue in AWS for a while. So it's really cool to see that we're, we're hitting on this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think AWS is in this to play as well. Mm-hmm. Going to be a big. I think all three are going to be in a player in this space, and we're talking about a player. I mean, it might be your, you know, one tenth the size of what Microsoft has in terms of desktop workloads. But that's still a really big number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, I've digressed. Let's keep going. All right, all right. So now we're going to talk about the uh, Citrix enhancements to DAS, desktop as a service, which used to mean one thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Now Gardner has opened up what that means to mean not just a desktop running in a cloud it uh, and hosted and, and maybe even managed, but certainly hosted by someone else. Now it means that platform that enables desktop to be accessed, whether or not the desktop is fully offered as a service or not, is kind of up to you. And a lot of providers, including Citrix, can bring that. Uh, first one, first topic here talks about something that's near and dear to my heart that most people don't put enough thought into, and that is understanding the applications and whether or not they'll work well or be supported in this world. So the first one is support for MSIX and MIS, 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 excuse, MSI, MSIX or MSIX app attached. Let me, let me start real quick by giving us the history of applications, right? It used to be that you got a, a floppy disk. Hopefully some of you guys know what that is, a floppy disk. And it had the application on it. You put the floppy disk in the drive. You you, you uh, browsed. You, uh, you, know, you went through your CLI, your client interface, down to that level of the C drive, more than likely. And you launched setup. You, know, you launched uh, run.exe. Uh, not set up. That's not. It would run .exe, and it would everything it needed was on that floppy drive. And within a matter of seconds or more, your application would start running. Microsoft specifically realized that uh, we needed something smarter. Hard drives got bigger, and we can now take that application and pre-install it into the computer on the hard drive, and then use this thing called the registry to make it accessible in a meaningful way. Uh, one of the moments in my life that was pivotal 
pivotal uh, two moments. One is when I used to see my uh, my girlfriend's brother uh, actually use his DOS computer to play games online. That fascinated me, and I I, I thought it was amazing he could type like a command and stuff would happen. Um, and then uh, the other thing was I was at a conference one time and they asked a guy named Brian Madden, which I'm sure all you guys know, hopefully some of our listeners do, the biggest uh, thing that's held us back. And he actually said the Windows registry. And at the moment, I was like, well, he's kind of right. I mean, if we didn't have to deal with that thing, how much more could we get done? And then I started realizing all the value in the registry, like somewhere to keep all that information so that you didn't have to know a bunch of commands to make things happen. Um, but that's the world of, of an executable. Well, Microsoft realized at some point to get that data from the uh, software into the computer's hard drive and into the registry, they needed a, uh, a piece of a software, um, the Microsoft installer, um, that could leverage a, a certain uh, extension, a certain file type, uh, a bunch of files, actually. And that's where this concept of an MIX, M -M -I MSI to replace just an executable that you ran. And then from there, now we have MSIX and uh, MSIX app attached. Bill, I'll go to you first. MSIX picks up where I just left off for the MSI and how? Uh, essentially, it's it's essentially, from what I understand, essentially packaging the app in a, in a manner similar to what you do with an MSI, but then it can attach using AppAttach. It can attach to the uh, to the running session at runtime or or on logon um, very very quickly, and then unattach or deattach, I guess, detach when the user logs off. So it's kind of, um, to some degree, I guess you could, you could, you could compare it to app layering, but it's a native technology to that Microsoft has developed further to enable the quick, the quick onboarding or loading of applications uh, and, and unloading of applications on log off. So it's kind of like, it's, is it kind of like an elastic layer where, yeah. you know, okay. Yeah. But it's application layer is not like a user layer. Well, right, so right, right. Here's a word from the past for you guys that have been around for a while. It's almost like you're real-time slipstreaming the application oh into the operating system and then taking it back out as you need to. Yeah, you, said the key, yeah. you said the key thing there, Andy, is taking it back out because yeah. that was always the challenge, right? And part of it is because it's still leaving behind some footprints in the uh in memory and you know it's got hooks into the processor and things like that and it doesn't always detach the way it really should um so over time you would run into problems like your memory would start to overflow or you'd run out of buffering space you'd run out of things and you know and of course the solution for everything is to just reboot the session or reboot the machine and then you're then you're good to go because it re it, it clears all those hooks and it clears out that buffering um but it, it was really kind of a, a challenge, right? Is how do you effectively um, insert and remove uh, applications, you know, from a from a user, especially those applications that people don't want to include in their, you know, their master image or their golden image, right? The the, the applications that are maybe used once or twice a week or a month or a year uh, type of thing where you don't want to have to include those into everything because of, it could be licensing. It could be a variety of different reasons why. Um, but the biggest thing is, you know, the, the, the whole changing of how we deliver applications to, to the user, whether it be in a session or whether it be on a virtual machine or even on the physical devices, you know, that's all changing. Is um, so MSIX is a replacement for AppV, if I understand correctly. 
I don't think it's actually isolating it from the OS like yeah. AppD okay. did. It's more mm-hmm. like layering uh, where you're, you you know, if you've got, I, I presume if you had an MSI attached that mm-hmm. had a DLL that conflicted with another MSI, you could have an issue potentially. But um, so it's not isolation. It's just uh, packaging and, and layering. I think the idea is, unlike isolation, it's intended to integrate into the OS real time in such mm-hmm. a way that all the other apps don't know it's not actually there. They, they, they it, it looks like it's been symbolically linked mm-hmm. into the operating system's uh, right. file system. It looks like it's in the registry and always was there. And then when it's uh, when it's removed, it totally cleanly takes itself out. So there was there was always a little bit of a limitation on things like AppD, where we're packaging and isolating. Um, do you know what makes for a good MSIX package? I mean, it could be anything, or are there the things that just don't make a good fit? Uh, I've had a lot of conversations about with people recently about this, and and what I want to be clear: this is Microsoft's latest way of integrating apps on demand, whether it's through layering mm-hmm. or what I call slipstreaming or what have you. Um, and it's not perfect either. There's still challenges that others are trying to solve. Bill, you had an answer. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that um, that it uh, again, it's just simply not uh, isolation. I think I, mm-hmm. I'd already said that though. Sorry. Right. Is, there, is there a client? Is there a client involved as well? You remember there was the AbV client that was responsible for, yeah. you know, the man. I'm just thinking in terms of like integrating into um, the operating system and then, you know, like deattaching it and making sure it kind of cleans itself up. Is that just something that's native to Windows these days, or is there a client that required as well? I, I'm going to say native to Windows, and that's part of the idea that this is all yeah. Microsoft. The, to me, Microsoft Windows is an application. This is there's an application inside Microsoft Windows that brings these other applications into the mix. And now that Microsoft is fully supporting this world of delivered compute, not just deployed compute, probably more favoring delivered compute because that's what gets the uh, Azure consumption meter going. The idea of uh, of bringing in apps real time uh, is something they're more excited about solving than ever. Yeah, and I think it does it does have restrictions similar to what you were saying, Jeremy, like certain apps like antivirus or drivers and things like Some that. The driver, don't, yeah. Don't fit it. Yeah, don't fit the, the mold there. But I think one way okay. this is in the app layering days, if we wanted to work with sorry, I took a bite of lunch. Um, if we wanted it to work, we needed to package Office with the other app. Mm-hmm. Now because it slipstreams in, Office and the Windows operating system doesn't know it's not there, it just uses it. Awesome. Hey, by the way, I did do a little trivia Google here, right? What was the last version of Windows that you could get on a set of floppies? And how many floppies did it take? Um, well, I know for a fact Windows NT. I'm going to go um, Windows 2000. I'm going to say NT4. NT4, okay. What you got, Bill? I'd say 2000. Windows 98, and it came on 39 floppy disks, if you were so inclined, right? So just imagine getting to floppy number 23, only to find that it was not not good. There you go. When I first got into this, I was uh, like five or six disks to get Windows NT4 onto a laptop, which mm-hmm. was obscene. Nobody did that. Um, I had a laptop from Gateway. I put it on. And then it was like two days worth of getting the drivers and stuff updated through a dial-up modem. Oh, my. <laughs> my uh my first official real job out of college was as a technical editor for a pc hands-on magazine and we had we sent out diskettes to every subscriber and we had a duplicating machine that basically would copy three and a half inch floppy or three and a half inch diskettes 
put the label on them and make sure they went out with every single copy. So it was, uh, this was back in the days, you know, we even had a CompuServe forum for the magazine. It was kind of interesting. And Todd, you thought you were the coolest thing ever, right? It, it was the coolest thing ever, dude. <laughs> All right. Next uh, topic in line here is introducing Citrix Hypervisor Cloud Management Service. This is interesting, especially for me with some of the things I've got going on. Todd, Todd you're an old guy. You know what's in server is. Tell us about it. So, so, hey, one real quick uh, comment before we go down this path, Andy, is um, the, the MSIX uh, is available in a, in a tech preview right now. So mm-hmm. if you, if you know, if our listeners want to check out the, uh, the blog that we're referring to, there's links in there to sign up for those previews, for that tech preview. So uh, just a little public service announcement on that part. Um, but we can certainly talk about uh, we can certainly talk about the Citrix hypervisor, you know, the cloud management um, service. Um, so, uh, little known, I think some people probably forgot about Citrix hypervisor, formerly known as Zen Server, um, but and it's coming back as Zen Server. Um, but this is custom built for uh, you know it's it's included in uh, Citrix DAS and virtual apps and desktop deployments, um, and it allows people to utilize the Citrix Zen Server hypervisor as as a on-prem solution, right? So you can actually run it as if you were running Hyper-V or uh, vSphere or anything like that. Um, but what we've done is we've added in, uh, the, and once again, this is also a preview uh, to be able to manage the hypervisor and the, the hypervisor, both the on-prem as well as the cloud uh, directly through your Citrix management service. So, Todd, is this, this uh, management service specifically only for Zen Server or other hypervisors that might be in your data center? So, this is primarily for our own. Mm-hmm. And does it go through the uh, the cloud connector to do this? What, what's its uh, avenue to get back into the data center? So, it would go through the cloud connector. Yeah. Okay. That's Look, um, I haven't seen this stat in a while, but let's take VDI for a while. What percentage of VDI workloads, Citrix VDI workloads, actually run on the Citrix hypervisor today? Ballpark? It's really, really probably a low percentage Mm -hmm. um, from a VDI perspective. But one of the bigger use cases for uh, for Citrix hypervisor or Zen server, uh, this is the this is the inherent hypervisor that's built into our SDX appliances as mm-hmm. well. I was going to Google this real quick, and this, I guess, has been a while time is flying, but maybe five years ago that Citrix estimated that half of all of their VDI workloads actually ran on, on Zen Server. Uh, I'm sure that's come down some, but still, it's there's a there's a number out there where this we still run into people that are still doing it. Yeah, yeah that's probably a good question for, for Bill there, right? So, and customers that you bump into, how many customers are just ballpark it like are you seeing it pretty consistently i'm not seeing zen server i'm seeing mostly most mostly vmware um and the cloud obviously or mm-hmm. a cloud um zen server we we do see it occasionally and it's interesting most of the projects if you want to call them projects they're more like you know um help bail me out of the river here i'm drowning where they've got version 6.5 of zen server running and it's breaking and they can't get support and they and we've had we bailed a couple of customers out of that situation um, so that that's been more common. Um, 
but as a as a general rule of thumb, it, it's it's declined, and I think it's declined over the past four years since I've been here because of the lack of focus or or lack of presence in the market. Um, although I think we are there's probably more of an appetite for it now than ever uh, from what I see in the market and folks that are going to other hypervisors because of the the costs that VMware has for keeping it in, keeping it in place. I think my take on this is Citrix continues to do something. It, it's still a viable place uh, if you understand what you're getting into on a bunch of desktop workloads. And if you do it in such a way that you have redundancy and capabilities, you, you can get it done. And it, it, there's no cost. Yeah, it's absolutely viable. I mean, I did it a lot back in the day and, and uh, I had it in my lab for the longest time. Um, still do have at least one running Zen server and I loved it. Um, it's really simple. Um, to get set up and and it works and uh, you know I I think I'm hopeful that with continued focus we'll we'll see a lot more of it. Well, and, and we're talking as a bunch of Americans. If there's any Europeans listening to us, they're probably yelling at us because there's a there's a larger oh yeah population over there. Oh yeah, yeah. And so and if you head out to the cloud.com website, so you'll see that one of the business units outside of Citrix, Netscalers, a few of the Tibco ones is uh, the Zen Server business unit actually. Yeah, they they broke it out. They did. Yeah. They did. Yeah, yeah. If you scroll yeah. down, you can see the different BUs, and one of one of them is Zen Server. Interesting. So I, I know there is a focus on Zen Server going forward. Yeah. All right, uh, Samuel, um, and group based administration. First of all, somebody define what Samuel means. I mean, SAML is modern auth, right? So, you know, you think of um, the way a lot of organizations authenticate, it's been, you know, Active Directory, Kerberos, that sort of authentication model. Um, SAML, looks like you're Googling this to get something very specific here, but- um, because, but you're right. I mean, you're, you're, what, what you said- Something, right. assertable markup language, security, security assertion markup language, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that, listen, you get a lot of authentication, not based on AD, right? And so how do you, how do you tile that together? Um, and that's essentially what SAML does, right? So you've got something called an identity provider, which is essentially a directory of some kind, not just a directory. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to hold the accounts. It just needs to broker accounts in some cases. And you've got a cert, what, what they call a service provider. So that's the actual, you know, application that you want to, you want to support um, logging into, right? So let's just take Salesforce, for instance, for whatever reason, I'll use that. But, you know, Salesforce will be your, your service provider. You know, I will just say, you know, Azure AD would be your IDP and you're counting on Azure AD to log you into this application. So you say, hey, Salesforce, I want you to trust Azure AD and anyone who's trying to log into Salesforce, I'm going to trust Azure AD to be my directory, if you will. So uh, in this case, we've supported Azure AD as an identity provider for identity and access management into Citrix Cloud for a while. Um, but we've opened that up. And so now it's more generic SAML. Um, and I think we've got 20 listed providers, but at the end of the day, SAML I think is a standard. So yeah. and if you've got a if you got a platform that supports SAML, you know, maybe it wasn't tested, which means it didn't show up on the list here, but uh, it sounds like we can uh sorry, I'm all over the place. <laughs> so it, okay, so SAML. So here we're talking about SAML group-based administration. So we're able to, in your Citrix.cloud.com portal, we're able to break down a little deeper who can do what. 
Well, not just that, but not only can you break down, um, you know, who can log in, but in the past you were assigning it to individual users. Now you can do it to groups. So as much as I would like to add all 40 of my Citrix admins into the cloud, I'd much rather just maybe, you know, import in one group that said Citrix admins. Right. And how, um, I guess over time you'll be able to delegate more and more things based on that group membership. Uh, I would think so. Um, I need to drill into this to find out, you know, so one of the pieces here is role-based administration, but um, you know, when you add an administrator or in this case, a group of administrators into the cloud, one of the things that you can give them access to is certain services in the cloud. So most folks are probably thinking the DAS service, but secure private access, endpoint management, you know, yeah. Citrix files, that sort of thing. I mean, there's a lot of things that run there. So when you add an admin, you say, Hey, this is what I'm going to give you access to. And so, um, you can do that out of the game. So, okay. So we have that in our real lives. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the first thing, one of the first things, if not the first thing, well, what, what's the first thing you're given when you're born probably is a name. And the first thing they do once they have that name is they take it and they apply it to, to what? That we're a birth to, certificate? Birth certificate. A, a gets, token, if you will. <laughs> birth certificate that then gets turned into at some point a social security number. And mm-hmm. your name and that number, you're together forever. Yeah. It's like your permanent token. If we're going to unless, use some same, same language here. Unless you die and then they reuse your number after a certain period of time. Yeah. Well, and that does happen. But in the world of mm-hmm. technology, hopefully the number's big enough and hashed enough where it doesn't matter. Yeah. But that, that's the analogy. Is you're born in Canada, you get at some point you need some, you get some kind of number that tells you what your number is. Everybody's a number. Uh, and then some way to prove that that is you when the time mm-hmm. comes. And then from there, you can get a driver's license. And from there, you can get into a bar someday and drive on the road and, you know, even get a, a wristband to hang out at a, a resort for a week. That identity gets used all over the place. But there's some protocol, in this case, the SAML protocol. Um, and then at some point, you get grouped into a bunch of people. So, you know, Bill's mm-hmm. grouped into a bunch of Virginians, right? He's part of that group because that's where he, that's where he lives, where he's born. And where he lives, both two separate groups, people born in Virginia and people who currently live in Virginia. And that gives him the right to do stuff in Virginia. Anything special you can do in Virginia the rest of us can't do, Bill? <laughs> not use not radar there. detectors. Not use radar detectors. Not that's use the- radar detectors. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, here's one, and I'm in the middle of it right now. Uh, my kids, because they, because I live in North Carolina, can go to the uh, university in North Carolina at for a state discount. Same here. Uh, Virginia College University, not North Carolina. Yep. All right, uh, let's jump on this next one. How are we doing? Oh, we got five minutes left. Let's knock out these three, and then we'll be heading towards uh, you know part eight someday. Uh, application delivery, act, Active Directory with connector appliances Todd go ahead what's that one so so this is a this is ways to uh, ways that you can immediately leverage um, these capabilities within your Citrix DAS deployment right so being able to take an active directory with uh, with your connector appliance basically you can use that to connect to the resource location to the forests uh, that don't contain all those AD joined resources, right? So, you know, in the old days, you used to have to create uh, two different cloud connectors per domain, and then you would have to uh, build up all this additional infrastructure uh, to be able to make this work. And what that does is the the net 
of this is that it reduces your total cost of ownership on the infrastructure and the administrative side. I saw this come across the other day. I was super excited about it. I've been waiting for it for a while. So, Bill, I guess we'll be doing projects two years from now. We won't be setting up uh, Windows servers for cloud connectors. We'll be just setting up two or more appliances. Well, we'll be setting up the connector appliance, but we won't have to set separate connector appliances for every domain right. or even for those machines that are not a member of a domain. So historically, if we had multiple domain domains that weren't trusted, we might have to create a pair of collect, connect, connect, uh, client, uh, connector appliances for domain A, a pair for domain B, et cetera, or forest A, forest B. Looks like now we don't have to do that. Awesome. And honestly, the biggest area where this is going to have an impact is these customers that grew through a lot of acquisitions that yes. never went through and cleaned up their domain infrastructure. Yeah, They just added these trust relationships and these forests out there and, you know, they just let them be. And what happens is it costs a lot more. Right. So just so we're all clear about what these appliances are, right? So there are two different kinds of connectors, if you will. There is the... Um, I'm going to bugger this up. Um, you've got the Windows connectors that Andy was just talking about, right? So if you're running the DAS service, um, the Windows connectors are imperative because it runs most of the services that we care about, right? So it's proxying. It's the DDC, if you will, for your for your VDAs. It is the, um, um, you know, it's the interactions, the power management. It's all those things that you need. The connector appliances is actually a separate appliance altogether, right? And right now it supports the image portability service that's required for secure private access. It's also, going back to what you said, Todd, earlier, it's the hypervisor management service as well, right? So today, you need both, right, to Bill's point. And what we've just turned on is the ability for this appliance to basically traverse a forest, which is a big deal. Right. Um, because right now, you need a pair of connectors in every single domain that you need to provide access to. And, and so just to be clear, the connector appliances that it's probably a net scaler under the hood, if we're being honest. Um, you import it in, super easy to deploy, uh, but now it lets you traverse a forest, which is a big deal. So when you're applying um, group and user membership to applications, when you publish them, now you've just reduced your footprint across the board, but you still need the Windows appliances as well. Because again, that is your DDC, that's the local host cache, that is power management, that is all the things that the DAS services require. Yeah. And, which is and pretty important. Jeremy, I, I, I want to challenge you on this. So I think what this is saying is it can traverse multiple, like a forest is everything AD under one forest. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you can actually have two not trusted forests and actually have it look at both. And I guess it goes through one and then the other, but you don't have to have them trusting each other, those two, two forests. Yeah, it, it looks like, and I haven't been through the documentation yet, but it lets you go through and define a lot of those different mm -hmm. domains within the appliance itself. So as opposed to, yeah, with the Windows connectors, it was relying on the domain membership of those Windows connectors, and that's right. kind of how it worked. So that's why you had to keep dropping these things in everywhere. Um, but there's a spot in here where you can configure different domains and trust within, uh, it looks like the appliance. So I'll have to, we'll have to spin this up and play around with it a little bit. All right. Hey, look, we're out of time. I think Todd just dropped off the earth on us. Um, so we're, we're, we're without him now, but let's, let's stop here. We'll just make a mental note that this is where we're going to pick up next. And they, these are great conversations. And if this takes, you know, seven weeks to get it all out there, that's fine. Um, the conversations are worth it. Absolutely. So with that, we'll let you guys go. I know Bill's got to get on the road, Jeremy. I'm sure you got like 18 more meetings before five o'clock. <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. All right, guys. Well, listen, have a happy Monday. Thanks. Thanks. See you guys.